Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Red Hen Press, publisher of the novel Unseen City by Amy Shearn. Unseen City is a multi-generational portrait of New York and the unexpected connections between a lonely Brooklyn librarian, a widower returning to his roots, and a ghost still lingering in a home that was once part of an activist-founded farming settlement described as, quote, an entrancing story of falling in and out of love and grief with a city a Person and a Home by Naomi Jackson. Unseen City is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Unseen City by Amy Shearn, available now from Red Hen Press. Best of all, get 40% off of Unseen City and your entire order for a limited time using the code OTHERPPL. Just go to https colon slash slash shop dot aer dot io slash red underscore hen underscore press use that offer code other ppl all right okay hey everybody what's up how you doing welcome to the other people show my name is brad listy i'm in los angeles it is good to be with you it's good to be talking into this microphone to you I'm uh, very excited to have Stephen Dunn on the program today. He is the author of a couple of novels. The first is called Potted Meat. That was published in 2016, and the most recent novel is called Water and Power. Both are available from an indie press called Tarpaulin Sky. And uh, Stephen Dunn was born and raised in West Virginia. He spent 10 years in the Navy, Water and Power, deals with these experiences. I read it. I was really impressed with it. I wanted to talk with Stephen, and he was kind enough to give me his time. So my conversation with Stephen Dunn coming up momentarily, I do want to quickly apologize for the delay in getting this episode out. I had some AT&T internet issues. We had service guys here all afternoon 
yesterday into the night. They had to come back this morning. But the good news is uh, we got it resolved. It was so stressful for me just because it's taken a long time. It's been this saga. It's like the third time AT&T has had to come out. The customer service experience was not pleasant. And then we had the debate last night with Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump. All of it together, I went to bed last night and I couldn't sleep. Just got me all like worked up. Customer service shit bugs me. Donald Trump bugs me. The whole thing, just make it stop. It's got to stop. This is insane. Anyway, uh, this conversation with Stephen Dunn should hopefully help restore some sanity. Give everybody a little bit of a respite from uh, whatever static is out there and intruding upon our serenity. You know what I mean? Oh, and let me also uh, remind you that if you want some other people gear, you can get that gear, t-shirts, sweatshirts, tank tops, over at otherppl.com. Just click on the little t-shirt on the left sidebar. And if you're out there and you want to send in a photo of where you listen... We love getting those. Just uh, email the show, letters at otherppl.com. Take a selfie, take a photo of uh, your surroundings, whatever it is. Do both. I don't care. Send it in. Let us know where you are in space. You can also DM the photos to us on Twitter or Instagram. All right? Okay. So Stephen Dunn is the guest. His latest novel, Water and Power, is available from Tarpaulin Sky. Here he is, folks. This is Stephen Dunn. Um, my mom worked for the school. She was a cook for the school. Um, there weren't a lot of jobs, but it it used to be like a big ass coal mining town, like really booming coal mining town. Um, and people left, you know, so that's why it was so small. You know, it's just population kept decreasing and everything. So I had some friends in high school quit to go work in the mines, you know, so there isn't a lot to do there. Very small. You know. And that never appealed to you to go work in the mines. No, not at all. Yeah. It was good money though. I think about it like my friends in like 99 making $32 an hour in West Virginia. I'm like, shit, man, that's like, that's rich, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think about, uh, I don't know if this was, I don't know if this is still a thing. I guess it probably is. But I remember when I was getting out of college in the you know mid to late 1990s, a lot of, uh, a lot of people or not a lot of people, but some people would go up to Alaska and work on those fishing boats. Oh, and it was similar. It was like the, the pay, you know, for a young person coming out of college was really good. It's also a dangerous job. But uh, if you didn't work on the boats, you could work in the canneries. And I want to say if you did it for a summer, you could walk away with like 20 grand or, you know, whatever it was. But it was, uh, wow. it was attractive for that reason. You could make like yeah. a, a lump of cash. Where did you grow up um, or go to high school with? Uh, Milwaukee. I grew up like first part of my childhood was in Milwaukee. The second part was in Indiana. Okay. Wow. Wow. So, right. you know, no coal mines, but I mean, Indiana, I don't know that like Indiana and West Virginia, it's not entirely dissimilar in terms of the, the milieu. Yeah. I don't think it is. Yeah. Even like some of the language, uh, especially in Southern Indiana, because some of that spillover from Kentucky and stuff. So yeah, it's that Appalachian, you know, uh, what is it? Scots Irish. I don't even know what you call it, but there's a, I think there's a, a similar like migratory pattern or uh, cultural history. There is. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So what about your dad? Was he, was he a coal miner? 
No, my dad, he was an electrician, so he worked on TVs and stuff like that, but he didn't work much when I was growing up, but one of his jobs was being an electrician, so, yeah. What do you mean he didn't work much when you were growing up? Was he older, or did he just not work? Um, I, I don't really, he just didn't work that much. Like, he had little side jobs and stuff, but he wasn't, like, going out every day and coming back in, so I don't even know what to call it, freelancing or part-time. <laughs> I don't know what was going on. Yeah. Well, no, that makes that makes. I feel like that's a, what a lot. Of, I mean, that's what a lot of people do these days, right? Yeah. We spent most of his time like volunteering to like coach little league football and baseball and stuff. So that's what he did mostly was was coaching kids, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. So he was involved. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what kind of kid were you? Oh man, I was fucking up all over the place. <laughs> Not really fucking up, but just like I don't want to say bad, but just like the artistic mind, you know, I played sports and everything, but I was always outside like hiking before I knew what hiking was. I was drawing a lot. I was super into rap because of older cousins and shit too. So yeah, that's kind of what kind of kid I was just like always in trouble in school for drawing in class, (laughs) you know, that stuff. But a good kid. You seem like you were like a likable kid. I think so. Yeah. I had a couple, like a few, like really solid, good friends and shit. We were all really cool. So yeah. And like always bounce between like sports, the nerds, you know, <laughs> and all of that stuff. So just kind of like cool with everybody, especially like going up through high school. Cause I did that, you know, I played sports and I was in math field day and I went to vocational school, you know, and I was a little weirdo. So I had a little goth girlfriend too at some point. <laughs> Wait, so, yeah. wait, were you goth? I, w- I was not goth, but I liked it for some reason, right? Like, I was attracted to her. Like, that was part of the mystique was this goth shit she had going on. You know, <laughs> so we like, listen to music. So I'm like, here, listen to this Jodeci album. And she was like, here, listen to this Ozzy Osbourne album. <laughs> <laughs> wait, is Ozzy goth? I thought, like, The Cure was goth. I don't know. I, I need to I study. Know, I need to read up. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever it was at the same time, right? You know, it wasn't rapping R and B, so it was like weird goth, you know, to to us or whatever. So, so yeah, we looked pretty funny in high school. Like I write about it, and you know, like people would call me JJ from Good Times and call her Dracula's daughter. You know, so we like walking down the hallway. I got seventies clothes on and shit, and she looks like a vampire. You know. What was the uh what was the like the racial makeup of is it Kimball? That was the name of the town you grew yeah. up in? Yeah, I wanna say Kimball was really black. Um so but my high school was about half and half. So I think we were mostly a black town in our like four hundred people town. So yeah. But the high school was pretty integrated. It was like uh it was it wasn't just like you were like one of the only black kids or something like that. It was Oh yeah, not at all. Yeah. Yeah, there were oftentimes where, like white kids were the only few, you know, like were the minority in some of our classes and stuff, especially in elementary school. You know, like there were like three or four white kids around. You know, we had, had a lot of black teachers growing up, um, had some white teachers, too. So it was it was mixed. I want to say like maybe 70 percent black was my town, possibly. So. OK, and and it, and it was good. It's I mean, it was uh what was it like was there a lot of hostility did you grow up around a lot of like racial animus and stuff like that oh totally yeah man it was it was bad yeah uh especially like when we would go to other towns like people would call my coach a nigger lover and shit when we would go to these other towns to play football and basketball and 
and there was like we still had clan marches in the 90s you know in my town like down main street and shit um so yeah it was like really racist but we had a black town so it, yeah it's so hard to explain okay okay wait 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 what what's going on when the clan is marching through main street in a black town nothing we just mind our business and we like go on somewhere right <laughs> like, we just don't bother with it you know we see it you know but we just stay away from it um rebel flags everywhere you know <laughs> but but also like the younger people wearing rebel flags when people say like it's culture not hate or whatever heritage not hate i feel like that was true for like my friends and shit in high school because you know they would go to black clubs with their little rebel flag shirts on and some jordans and maybe a fubu hat and be break dancing in the black club right <laughs> so <laughs> so they were like i don't think they knew like to them it was just like this is just like some southern redneck shit that we wear you know yeah no i i hear you because i uh when they were taking down the or changing out the state flag in mississippi and um you know then they i think they pulled what they pulled it down in south carolina as well you know there's been this movement in recent times and yeah. As it was happening, I was kind of applauding, but I think in the back of my mind, I was like, shit, I used to have a Dukes of Hazard lunchbox when I was like in first grade. <laughs> oh my God, I tell this story all the time. I had a little Orphan Annie lunchbox, and one of my uh, friends in school had a uh, Dukes of Hazard, and we traded. And my parents were like so mad that I had this fucking Dukes of Hazard lunchbox, and they made me get rid of it, so I was without a lunchbox. Like, no Orphan Annie lunchbox, no Dukes of Hazard lunchbox. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, the thing is, though, I mean, I was what? I, it's defensible. I was in first grade. I didn't know what I was doing. I just liked the, I just liked the General Lee. I thought it was like a fast car, and, you know, I was a kid. And, so, uh, yeah. I think when it comes to the the Confederate flag and its place in like American cultural life, especially in the South, I do think most people it's it's a cultural thing and somehow like is an emblematic of the South. But the problem I have is that all you have to do is think about it for like ten seconds. Yeah, and then you go, oh. Yeah, this is a dumb thing to be embracing. You know, like to cling to it even though people have said, you know, have pointed out like, "Hey, by the way, you know, this thing symbolizes um, you know, secession and defense of slavery and all this, you know, like clearly awful shit." Like I don't think it should be like some like hugely heavy lift for people to make a change mentally and yet, you know, there's this there's yeah. like this devotion to it that freaks me out. Yeah, that's a totally good point, man. Hey, folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. 
It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. So, you're growing up. You said earlier that you were hiking before you knew what hiking was. And as I imagine, Kimball, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, I'm thinking of... Uh, like a rural area in Appalachia, like rolling hills and stuff. Were you out in nature a lot as a kid? Like, were you just wandering the woods and and all that kind of stuff? Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, all the time. It was just, yeah, that was just like where we played, right? (laughs) Um, You know, we played in the streets and, you know, cut grass all the time and just walked wherever. So, yeah, over the mountain, through the train train tunnel, so yeah, just out in nature a lot. Yeah, it was just always around us. And um, like we grew up in a lot of, um, of, there were a lot of abandoned houses and everything around. So nature was also like living with us <laughs> in a way, you know, like we had to watch out for snakes and rats and shit, you know, in the house. And a lot of people were connected to nature in that way, just because we were in it. You You hunt? My uncle did. Yeah, I went hunting a few times, but I never did it myself a lot. We fished a lot. Uh, went hunting quite a bit with my uncles and stuff, but I never like took it up on my own. So what about books? How do books factor into your childhood? Was it something you embraced from an early age or is it something you came to later? Something I came to later. Yeah, they don't. I'm I'm writing about that now. How they, I read a lot in elementary school, um, a lot of like Beverly Cleary and stuff, <laughs> you know, those things you read in as a young grade, but I only read one book from the time I was like, from age 12 to 22, I read one book, which was uh, The Old Man in the Sea, which I like it. You know, I still read that book from time to time. But yeah, it was something I got into later. But um, when I started writing, I listened listening to rap albums, right? So I learned a lot of geography and <laughs> social shit and history shit through a lot of rap albums. So yeah, you know, so like one like fiction book, so one non-textbook, only read one non-textbook throughout my 12 to 22 life. <laughs> so Yeah. Do you know why? I mean, cause I think back, I, I, I probably read a, like a, a bit more than that when I was that age, but I've heard similar sentiments expressed by guests on this show in the past, mm-hmm. usually, uh, you know, male guests who throughout like, you know, those junior high and high school years, like adolescence, you, I guess you're just like, so, you know, busy fucking around and <laughs> being a teenager, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It seems sort of natural, you know, to to kind of not be uh, in like super like bookish nerd mode, though. I guess some people are. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. what I think it is it's busy fucking around. But but what I'm writing about now is we did that with rap albums. Like we had classes, basically, like we'd all listen to a rap album and talk about it. We argue about it, you know, uh, so we did what you would do with books in school with rap albums. So I was like, that was a type of study for me in this type of communal way of discussing literature or whatever it was. So, so yeah, I was like, we still did that functionally. It just wasn't with books. It was with music. What were some of the formative rap albums of your youth? Oh boy. Um, Illmatic, Nas's Illmatic, um, Nas's, <laughs> pretty much Nas's first three albums. Um, I want to say 
a lot tribe called quest a lot of tribe called quest i feel Heavy. like i feel like uh i i've been made fun of for admitting like i'm always like i like tribe called quest and everyone's always like that's always the shit that white people say they like <laughs> oh what <laughs> i never do that <laughs> I don't know what I'm it is. Saying that anytime anybody says they like it, I'm like yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I love Tribe Called Quest. Yeah, yeah, Tribe, uh, and a lot of uh, Heavy D because my mom and my dad loved Heavy D, so we listened to Heavy D a lot, right? <laughs> uh, like I listened to it independently of them, and they listened to it independently of me, but we also listened to it together. So Heavy D was really important to me too, which is. Also, why I like struggled with a lot of other rap too. I'm like, oh, Heavy D really don't call women bitches, and like, you know, like, he, he's okay. <laughs> you know? So I struggled with a lot of other rap because of Heavy D, which is interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> you uh, you graduate high school in West Virginia, and then you get you go on to join the Navy. Is that right after you graduate? Yeah, like the summer after. Yeah, yeah. Spent the summer, then left. Yeah. What what prompted that? Um, nothing. Just being poor, actually, and uh, wanting to get out of West Virginia quickly. And I didn't know much about college. I had some older cousins that went to college, but I knew they were back, and they were talking about money all the time. So I just didn't know. Like, I didn't know you could get loans to go to college. Actually, like nobody talked to me about this stuff. So um, I wanted to be an architect because that's what I did. Like my whole like high school was doing vocational school and designing shit, making blueprints. So I wanted to do that. But I just didn't know that it was possible. So I just defaulted and joined the Navy with a couple of my other friends. Do you have uh, family members who were military? Like, was your dad military? Was there any kind of tradition you were following? Not at all. Yeah. One of my uncles was in the military, um, but he didn't talk about it much, you know. And yeah, so yeah, I wasn't following any tradition, any like sense of duty, any sense of patriotism. It was, you know, looking at those like, advanced commercials about learning the computers and shit and then just wanted to get out the wanted to get out of West Virginia. So it was just purely like functional and a way to escape. And what year was this that you joined? Uh ninety nine, yeah. Ninety nine, okay. So pre nine eleven. Yeah, so it was like two thousand is coming up, learn computers and blah blah blah, you know, the cutting edge of everything. So. Right. See the world. Yeah, yeah. Um so let's talk about your book. And, you know, I have read not a whole lot in this genre, which I guess would be called like what military literature. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's nominally a novel. I think that's how it's, it's classified. But, um, you know, you also point out that it's like an ethnography. It reads a lot like nonfiction. It feels like a hybrid form. Is that fair? Oh, totally. Yeah, it is. I just, I call it a novel. I think it's just easy to call it that, um, and I want it to be read from like front to back and there's some shit that develops over time. And I think a novel can hold all of these different things. So I just like, it's a novel. We'll just read it as that. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I, I just, I'm, I just finished a similar sort of book that everybody thinks is a memoir, but I'm like, no, it's really a novel. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, for those people listening who have not read, you know, this book feels, um, in its like formal construction, like a liter a work of literary collage, um, you're combining different elements. There's a visual element to your book. You have uh, photos. You have um, 
you know, reproductions of I, what I believe are official like brochures from the Navy. Um, you have um, like, ma- like I think like excerpts or images of manuals around things like sexual harassment and uh, those kinds of protocols. And so you're sharing like proprietary information or uh, like <laughs> inside info. And rather than just producing it in text, you're actually sharing the images themselves. And so it feels as you're reading like, uh, or at least it felt this way for me, like I was getting uh, insight and perspective that I've never gotten before. Um, and I'm just curious to hear you talk about how you settled on this kind of um, framework. Like how, how did the book uh, become itself? Did you start this way or did you land here after some trial and error? Yeah, I, I landed there after some trial and error. So I'll start with um, about I hate military literature most of the time because it is singular in its voice, right? So even anti-military literature is like still a singular, you know, like heroic type of thing. So like functionally, I feel like it's, they're similar to like pro-military narratives and stuff. And even anti-military books still focus on themselves as a victim. But I'm like, oh, we also have these other people who are also victims and other people in the military who are also victims. so yeah, it started out being like that. I was like, I want it to be multivocal and have these different um, things to it because of the textures of all of these documents and people's voices. So that's how it started off as. So I knew I, I wanted that. And then this um, fictional ethnography shape came later. You know, it's like, write about a person, like learning <laughs> other people in the military or wanting to include these things. So yeah. And then um, as far as like, like those documents themselves, like the um, how to train gay people, <laughs> you know, how to report gay people. There was the comic book that teaches you how to do that. And I I couldn't reproduce that in text. Like it wouldn't do its job, you know, and it was, and I saved that before I knew I was a writer. I saved that comic book because I thought it was so stupid. Um, <laughs> so like it was something about it. I was collecting these, these memories, these documents and everything. So um so yeah, that's how it came about. Yeah, and wanting to offer like people the texture of coming across this stupid comic book, or a PowerPoint brief that teaches you about sexual harassment. There's something about that material for me. Well, it's interesting uh, to hear you talk about this because I have not been in the military, but I can. I mean, uh, I can imagine that you know, based on what little I know, that you know, you're in an environment where. Obviously, things are very orderly. There are protocols for just about everything. Um, efficiency is prized. There are, um, you know, systems that you have to follow, and you know, you're on a, a, a very like routine schedule and all the all the rest. And I think by virtue of that, I'm just imagining that it's not an environment in which a lot of critical thinking is either encouraged or. Um, provided for time-wise. You don't have a lot of time typically to sit around questioning. You're probably not going to go to your commanding officer and be like, why are we doing this comic book? You know, <laughs> uh, you just have to sort of toe the line and get on with your day and do whatever you, you're commanded to do. You know, there's a chain of command that, that you have to follow. And so I, that's why I think uh, your book is so powerful and why I responded to it so much is because even though you're not, as you said, 
the protagonist in a singular way, um, I very much felt your presence throughout as the inquisitor and as an honest broker, somebody trying to understand something that is very complex. And, um, you know, I think by making it multivocal and by being so openly investigatory in your approach, you're honoring that complexity and uh, illuminating it for the reader. So I, I don't know. I just, I, I, I was very, um, I have a lot of admiration for the place that you landed in terms of how you set it up. Um, okay. I, um, I'm kind of rambling, but it's all good stuff. I'm, I'm praising you. <laughs> I appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and I think too about like, a, I think it's like a Mark Twain quote and it's about how like a book, you know, when it, if a book is to be done well, it has to find its form. It's something like that. You know, there's only kind of one way to write or tell an individual story. And I think you got to the place you needed to get to, to tell the story of the Navy through a lens that made sense to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I want to talk as well about, um, or I want to talk more deeply about the decision to make it multivocal. Um, all throughout the book, you feature interviews anonymously, um, with, um, you know, fellow soldiers, I, I think, are they all, uh, Navy men and women, or are there people from other branches of the armed forces? Yeah. So, so some from other branches, like the army and the air force. Um, yeah, I think some people specifically say like, Oh, when I got out the air force, you know, so it's from other branches also. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that. Like you set about to tell this and at some point you went out and conducted actual interviews or are these, are these fictionalized? I did conduct actual interviews. So, and it was easy to do because I had a lot of friends from the military and people that I still had access to, even though I wasn't in the military. So, so yeah, I, I don't want, I mean, not easy, but like getting interviews was easy, right. To, to ask people like, Hey, I'm writing this book. And I based that off of real life too. And it was like, Hey, you told me about this like some years ago, you know, like, I'm writing this book. Would you want to like give it to me for the book or whatever? And like we have all of these underground conversations that we would never say, you know, aloud while we're in the military. So that was part of the reason too, is like I've moved through the military having these conversations with people that I think are safe enough to have them with, right? And uh they'll tell me something. I'm like, wow, and we can't do anything with it, but you know, like support each other. So that's why I wanted the book to do that too, is like to have these conversations that we would have that you can't have officially in the military. So, yeah. yeah. And I like, you know, um, I like the, the multivocal thing because it underscores just how big, you know, the armed forces are, how many different people, how many different kinds of people are involved, how many different, um, levels of experience or kinds of experience people can have. You, like, I think there's one person you interview who's like, you know, an amputee or lost a limb in battle and, basically feels like they would do it all over again. Um, yeah. You have other people who are a lot more um, negative uh, in terms of their, like the way they apprehend their service and, you know, what it means to, or, you know, there, there's even an entire uh, diatribe against the word service or, or at least a meditation oh, yeah. on it, you know? So I don't know. There's a lot more ambivalence uh, from other people, but I think that in the, 
single perspective books that you're referring to, you know, some of the classic novels about war literature, there tends to be a single consciousness that things get filtered through. And it's usually like either a satire or, you know, I think at its best, it's some kind of satire or anti-war, you know, screed. But even there, you know, you're sort of missing a lot. You're missing the people who are like earnestly like wearing that uniform and really believe in the cause. Um, you know, you do see a lot of that. It's not all people who are disgruntled or psycho. You know, there are a lot of good people. There are a lot of people in the military who are kind of whole heart in it for like, yeah. I guess what you would call the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I struggle with too. Is like people who are like, I have my own views of it. Like I'm cynical and negative about it, you know, but then like, good people who are like really believe what they're doing is right and all of that. So I'm like, man, it's a, it's a struggle for me to even wrap my head around it in the military, you know? So, yeah. Like I may not feel this way, but they do, but uh, they, they might be wrong. (laughs) Like I might be wrong too. Did you feel an acute sense of confusion in while you were in the military about what you were doing or was it one of these things where like, you know, you, you signed up, you got very busy because the military is good at, at keeping people busy. And once it was over, you look back and we're like, what the fuck was that? Or was it confusion all the way through? <laughs> it was it was confusion all the way through. I feel maybe like the first year I tried to like be in the military, right? Like this is what I need to do to be here. And I, I was never any good at it. Um. And then when I went to Japan and there were people, a lot of people protesting in front of the base. And I think that's one of the things that like made me think more deeply about it. And that that started it. And then I started seeing more and more. And then I would collect newspapers from um, Bahrain. I have a lot of newspapers from Bahrain where it was like, fuck America, (laughs) you know, and all of this shit. And I was like, man, this totally is not lining up with the message we receive, you know, from literature, from culture, from people in the street, from people in the military themselves, you know, like, we're doing great. This is blah, blah, blah. And I was like, stuff isn't lining up here, you know. When you were in Japan, were you in Okinawa? Is that where the protests were? Yeah. Yeah, it was in Okinawa. Yeah. yeah. And Yakuza one time too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just know that's where the, you know, I know there's a big base in Okinawa that's been a point of controversy for locals there for a long time. So. Yeah. Yep. And I didn't know that, you know, I'm just like a little young dude in the military. I was like, oh, wow. This is, <laughs> you know. These people hate us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, I see why they hate that motherfucker right there, because I hate him too, right? <laughs> All right. So let's ask, I want to ask you, like, what kind of soldier were you? I know you said you gave it your your all your first year. Um, but, like, you know, when you we sort of measure yourself against the a broad sample of people in the Navy, like, where did you, where did you rank? Like, what kind of day-to-day soldier were you? Oh, so terrible. Um, just... I couldn't even like keep my uniform straight, you know, just like kind of sloppy, um, thinking too much too, like too critical of myself, you know, like of everybody else. And, um, just like, it was easy to be in the military in a way. Like I was just slacking pretty much for 10 years and I advanced, I made money, I was able to buy houses, <laughs> you know? So like, I was really shitty as a soldier or, a what, um, 
seaman. Yeah, really shitty as a seaman. But I was uh, smart enough to do my job, right? So, like, I was good at my radar technology and math shit, but I was just not good at being in the military. Um, I got in trouble a lot. <laughs> um, I, I went to one of the protests, like, immigrant protests down in Denver, and then I brought the Mexican flag back to work. It was kind of big, and then somebody put a U.S. flag under my Mexican flag, so it appeared that I was flying the Mexican flag higher than the U.S. flag, which was an issue. Uh, so my punishment was to give training to everybody, like something military-related training. So I looked up how the military recruits below the poverty line and brought up a map of the country concentration of uh recruiting stations and shit and so i was like uh the military recruits uneducated and poor people right and everybody got mad at me because they thought i was calling people poor and stupid and i was like but this is the reality of recruiting so that's who i was just kind of like knew you could get along and not get kicked out but i could also like cause trouble so yeah i was a troublemaker basically <laughs> but that's good I feel, I feel like you walked the line that's what you, you know you, you sort of like uh you kept collecting a salary, but you also were subversive in the ways that you could be. Yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. And you were in it for 10 years. Yeah, um, and because after the first four years, like, I just, I still wasn't sure about the world or anything, just because I was so, like, protected in the military that, and I was in Hawaii, so I went from West Virginia to Hawaii, and I was like, I don't know, like, I can't get out the military right now, because I don't know anything and they gave me some money, reenlistment bonus. So I was like, oh, that's a lot of money, $40,000, you know, for six more years. I thought it was a lot of money. So, yeah, that's why I stayed. <clears throat> well, and what about um, what about 9-11? You get in in, what, the late 90s, and, what, two years in, 9-11 happens. How does that change your service? Oh, my God, it was such a fucking joke. Um, such a joke. In, in a way that a lot of people who were in the military beforehand, um, we nobody was really that patriotic. I don't want to say nobody, but patriotism wasn't really like a front runner of people in the military. A lot of people were like, I want money for college. I want to travel, you know, and then after that happened, then like a lot of the attitudes started changing. And I can understand why that would change, but on 9-11 people always like to say like where you were so we were in hawaii and we didn't have to go to work because we weren't non-essential and we all got drunk in the barracks and just like glad that we didn't have to go to work we weren't glad about 9-11 of course but it was like oh my god we don't have to go to that place today and we were pretty much acting like college kids i guess you know and then a lot of people who joined afterwards were like more patriotic and more serious but other people in the military before like retrofitted that to themselves, you know? So it was like this one event. I mean, events, singular events change things, especially something like that. But yeah, so I just want to say it was a joke because I feel like it was easy for a lot of people to retrofit this attitude, even if they didn't have it. And it didn't always seem sincere, but I could be wrong about that. So. What about your, like, what about the actual nuts and bolts of your service? Like, did you wind up over in the Middle East? Um, yeah, I went to Bahrain once, um, but I was on submarines, so I didn't have to, like, physically go. We could volunteer to go if we wanted to. Um, like, the um, <laughs> that 
interview in the book. So that was a fictional interview because it was one of my like experiences where my chief was like, hey, you can volunteer to go over there, you know, in the Middle East. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not going, you know, um, that's not me. So that was one of my experiences that I fictionalized as an interview for the book. But yeah, so, and it was just the nature of our job, right? We were intelligent, so we didn't have to go shoot guns or anything. Um, so yeah, I didn't really like have to go, go, but more on a submarine and go underwater for a couple months. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was interesting, but also like, I saw all the racism at the same time. Um, I, I made a joke before a comedian did. I was like, oh, now like Muslims are the new niggas in America at work. And I got in a lot of trouble for that. Um, somebody called me racist, <laughs> like all types of stuff. I was like, no, this is what I'm saying. Like, I can still see the the racism in all of this and like what's going on in people's attitudes, you know, in the military with this. And I was like, I'm not okay with this. I can't be proud and I can't be patriotic because I still see all the racism. It's not different from black people, right? Um, so yeah, that was my take on it being in there. Well, this is something that your book addresses that I think also distinguishes it in that you're talking about things that do not often get discussed in military literature or in conversations around the military, uh, which is the experience of uh, homosexuals in in the military, um, issues of race, um, sexual harassment, the way that um, you know female soldiers might be treated. Uh, a lot of the times this stuff just sort of gets buried or it's a... Occasionally, there's an expose or some story that I'll see. Maybe I'm just not reading enough. But uh, to me, it felt like uh, the right choice again, uh, you know, to cover this stuff because, you know, as you describe, it happens often. You know, I'm thinking of the sexual harassment stuff. Um, this is not some isolated problem, and it, it also was kind of confirming for me because I've always wondered about that. Like, you have all these dudes in the military who are full of all this testosterone and are you know, trained for aggression and all this stuff. And there's very limited access to any kind mm -hmm. of, uh, like social life or, or women or anything. And then suddenly there's a, like a couple of cute female soldiers. I always think about those female soldiers. Like what must it li like be like for them to be surrounded by all this, um, you know, like uh, hyped up masculine energy. Yeah. I Man, <laughs> you, you said it. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah. It's exactly what it is. Um, I don't know. Some some people like take it on, right? Like some women I've seen take it on, like they become one of the guys, right? And um, some women don't, and they struggle with it. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Um, and that's one of the stories that I had to cut out of the book was because I had a woman um, talking about sexual harassment, so giving me a firsthand account of her sexual harassment. And then Colin Kaepernick didn't kneel for the flag and she was super offended. And I was like, I don't see a problem with it. So we got an argument about that. And she was like, don't put my story in your book. And I was like, all right, I cannot put it in the book then. Um, so it was interesting that she was really critical of the military for like not protecting her against sexual assault <clears throat> and like protecting the people above her who assaulted her. But on one hand, she was not critical about, um, I don't want to say not critical, but on one hand, she was not accepting of somebody else, a civilian, not kneeling. I mean, not standing for the national anthem. So that was a, yeah, I don't know what to think about this still. Uh, you know what here? Okay. Th this is a pet peeve of mine. 
And it's sort of tied, or not tied, but it's very similar to the uh, arguments and discussions around the Confederate flag. Uh, in that, I think, with like a very minimal amount of thought, one should be able to figure out that Colin Kaepernick, when he is kneeling during the anthem, is not like trying to piss on soldiers or... Uh, or, yeah. or like, you know, be some sort of like hateful anti-American. He's protesting racial injustice and he's trying to, I mean, do we not understand what this is? It seems so obvious. He's been clear about it. Why are we trying to twist this into something that it's not? And why are we being such big babies? Like the guy's protesting. This is America. Soldiers fight and die for that very right. So that people can protest their government. Like, the fact that he's actually exercising that right is now offensive. Like it just, it, like, am I yeah. am I missing something? No, I don't think you are. Uh, no, um, but people feel offended, right? Like they are part of this flag so much. Like they're so linked to this flag that they feel like it's offensive, you know. And maybe they don't want to admit that this flag is also racist too, right? Like it it stands for racism too, you know. Like there's a lot of racism done behind the name of this flag. So I don't think people want to do the work to think about what that really means <laughs> yeah it's like it is kind of a convenient like emotional exercise to just be like that's my flag you know what i'm saying like and oh, yeah. and to sort of ch like chest thump and talk about patriotism and all this different stuff but i don't know it's just like it, I, to me it just feels like so depressingly simple-minded like it does it doesn't even take that much to figure out that uh you know the flag like you're saying it isn't confined to like one narrow set of meetings there's quite a lot inside of it and yeah i don't know this is america we should be able to protest i don't, I don't understand why people don't get that yeah 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 <laughs> you're, you're like yeah tell me about it dude uh, no i'm just saying like i agree with you it's like depressing and just man yeah so did you ever have any situations in the military where you felt physically threatened like uh you know due to uh, terrorism or any kind of like, you know, militaristic danger? No, I haven't. Yeah. Just because of my job, like, um, being on submarines mostly and then oh, right. being um, like working with radars and satellites and stuff. So nothing like that, you know? which was nice. And I wonder like, would I feel differently? Like if I, my body was under a physical threat of violence, would I feel differently about it? I would imagine you would feel differently, right? <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So, <laughs> well, I, I think uh, one of the, you know, more um, like harrowing parts of the book is the descriptions you uh, include about submarine life. I have a cousin who is like a like a super genius, like nuclear physicist. He has like two PhDs. He's like one of these people, you know. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, total math science, but like super genius and. He uh, was in the Navy and would go out on, you know, what, like three-month deployments, whatever it was, on these submarines. And I cannot imagine living underwater on a submarine for that long. How the fuck do people do that? That seems, like, nightmarish to me. It, man, it, it is a very, like, weird thing. And I've never had anything to compare it to until quarantine recently. And I was like, this is similar. Like, you have to stay in your house, but you can also call your friends and you can watch TV and shit, right? Uh, so, yeah, I was like, really, I'm okay with quarantine because I was on submarines so much. 
Um, but I think for me, like, I had to let myself, like, be crazy or, uh, like, know that it's bad. I, like, really take it down a notch, like, downshift my whole being, you know, like, to prepare myself to be on the submarine. Uh, you know, it's like what I was saying in the book, like, don't expect too much, you know, just, like, kind of be even-killed, which is easier said than done. Like, it takes a lot of work to be that way. Um, yeah, it's it's weird, man. It's weird. And then, like, dudes, dudes, to be around that many goddamn men for that long is just not okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, no, like, one of the more, like, stomach-turning passages is where you're talking about everybody, like, jerking off in the showers and all the people just, ugh, you know, bodily fluids everywhere. And then talking about uh, how, like, I had never thought about how submarines dispose of human waste. Um, I think you compared it to like a whale with diarrhea, how it's like, it's like blasted out of the submarine with a thousand pounds of pressure. And I'm just like, Oh my God, like, how do you even, how do you keep it clean? I guess the military does a good job of keeping things clean, but it seems like it would just be filthy in there. What the, the inside of the submarine? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's dirty. Yeah. It's like, no matter how much you take a shower, how much you clean, it's always dirty. There's like film like a grease film you know everywhere it's just the nature of the thing it's dirty you're always tired you know <laughs> yeah it's a really weird thing i'd never thought about the way submarine like you dispose of waste on a submarine either before i was on it and i was like oh wow i never you know that makes sense you know what about mental health i i feel like people would get depressed you'd be on a submarine for three months you're locked down there like a thousand feet below the ocean or whatever like do you ever start to like? Do you ever start to feel moods come on? People getting sad. Anybody get claustrophobic and freak out? I've never seen anybody get claustrophobic. I think there's a test for that, but other mental health people they don't really like test you that much for it. Um, but yeah, people do get really depressed and angry. Like I've gotten super depressed on there. Um, like angry, like little things will set people off, you know. Like you start to see it after about a week and a half, <laughs> you know. So like not even that far in. And then it's like full on from there, you know. Um, yeah, people get like mad about people chewing too loud, you know, just like simple things. <laughs> like really get some people's nerves. It is super fucking depressing, man. Like, yeah. And then you come up, like you've been down underwater for two months, and then you, you, uh, you know, emerge from the sea and they let you loose in like what, like Thailand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I mean, God only knows what, I mean, American soldiers, that's sort of like the, uh, that's sort of like the popular knowledge at this point. It's just like, I feel like uh, going back to Vietnam, you know, you have all these young soldiers on leave in these like port towns in Asia or whatever. And it's just hookers and booze, basically. Yeah, yeah it's like people tend to act like that anyway, wild or whatever, like getting off the ships, you know, whatever. But then like, when you talk about people getting off of a submarine after a few months, you know, it's like, it's, it's nuts, you know, it's, it's crazy. But I just wanted to like, not be around anybody. That was my thing. I was like, I just want to go to a hotel, sit in the bathtub, go eat some good food and like chill out, and go to fuck home. You know, <laughs> I hear that. I hear it. Like, I think that's me. Like, that's the writerly introvert in you. You're like, can I just not be around so many goddamn people all the time? <laughs> and can I have like a clean room with like a nice, yeah. yeah, that's how I think I would have been too. But, um, 
you do see bad behavior, you know, I think when you've got that much like aggression and sexual frustration and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, sort of, uh, locked up inside of a submarine and then, you know, people get out and have too much to drink. And I imagine you probably witnessed like some questionable, questionable behavior. Oh yeah. A lot. Yeah. And you can still get called a hero. That's the interesting thing about it to me, right? <laughs> like, you could be as shitty as you want to be in the military, but you still get to be a hero, which is, ah, uh, which I don't understand. <laughs> how, how do you feel about it when people come up to you? I'm assuming, especially when you were wearing your like navy whites or whatever, like people would come up to you and thank you for your service at the airport or whatever. Do you ever get that? Like, and how does that make? How does yeah. that make how does that make you feel and then how does that average soldier relate to that? You guys must talk about it, right? How pe- how like, you know, civilians treat you. Some people talk about like let's say with trusted people, right? You could talk about this and with trusted people you're like I don't really like this shit, you know? Like I don't believe it. You know, like not everybody is a hero, so you can talk openly like that with some people. Um so there are, I knew quite a few people who felt like that. And I knew quite a few people who didn't question it, you know, like they could have just gotten out of jail for beating their wife or whatever, but then go out in the street with their uniform on and somebody was like, thank you so much, hero. And they're like, you're right. You're welcome. Right. I am a hero. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So a lot of people love it. I feel like that's the common thing. Like they really feel like they're doing something important. So they think it's deserved or they get upset when people don't acknowledge that in them, you know, and then there are people like me and my few friends who are like, no, don't, don't tell me, please. You know, I didn't argue with people before. Like I would just say, you know, like if somebody says they're praying for you, I'm like, Oh, your intent is good. You know, like I don't necessarily believe in God, but I thank you for your prayer. You know, Um, I used to be like that with people who say, thank you for your service. I'm like, I don't believe it, but whatever. I appreciate it. You mean well, um, but I've started letting people know now. I was like, you know, I don't really like that. I don't feel like it's deserving. <laughs> you know, probably spend too much time explaining it to people. But I just want to like put that in people's consciousness. Like, that's not okay all the time. You know. <laughs> yeah. Like, what should people say? There's nothing, right? Or well, I don't know. Like, it's hard to know. You know, if you're talking to somebody yeah. who's been in like a war theater or a combat and is back home, um, it's weird for me because I think. I tend to be predisposed to pacifism and I'm not hugely in favor of uh, armed conflict. I guess there are some instances where I could see it being justified if there's like an imminent threat to a large civilian population. I mean, it's, it's complicated, but yes, you know, it's like to, like I, I went through this with a cousin of mine who uh, was in the army or no, was he in the Navy? No, he was in the Air Force. <laughs> um, and he was over in Kuwait during the Iraq War. And I was really worried about him. And I was very much against the Iraq War. Um, I didn't think the justification for bombing Iraq was there, um, you know, vis-a-vis 9-11. And I remember trying to, like, walk that line between expressing, like, concern for him and admiration for him, but also you know, my, like, like also being honest about my disdain for George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and the decisions they were making. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. I, same with me too. <laughs> yeah, I felt even in the military, like I felt that same thing. And uh, we were doing these conversations. I helped put together like a veterans anthology 
and we were talking about this idea of service. And one woman said, I feel like y'all do about, you know, like saying thank you for your service. I don't want to say it, but I also want to show my concern. So I just tell people like, hey, I'm glad you're home or like, I'm glad you made it home. And I was like, wow, that's a that's caring, but it's also not, you know, um, like patronizing. Yeah, yeah, not putting like this false hero worship on people. So yeah, I was like, that's that's good. I like that one, <laughs> you know. I'm gonna steal that one. I'm glad you're home. That's a nice thing to say. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you're not on that fucking submarine anymore. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's like that's the the same dilemma that I dealt with too, you know, like you have good friends and then like I'll judge them for, you know, like just say something neutral like hey glad you made it back you know like i don't really mess with butch i don't think we should be doing this but then when i'm like you're wrong we should be doing it and i'm like well fuck you um i can move on i mean i'm still glad you're alive but i don't have to deal with you right? <laughs> <laughs> what about like what about what you learn about people like i i think from a writerly perspective that you must have you must get so much material from your military experiences like enough to sustain you for many books not just writing about like explicitly military things but just writing about the people you meet because you're working in such close quarters with people from a variety of different backgrounds uh can you talk a little bit about that experience and like maybe what like the like what is the racial um, situation in the military, like like the optimist in me wants to believe that it's better because you're sort of depending on one another for your safety. And is there a more egalitarian culture in the military than might exist elsewhere in civilian quarters in America, or is it is that a fallacy? No, I, I think on the surface it is, um, or like institutionally, right? Because. Let's say, like, the military was the reason a lot of Black people moved into middle class after World War II, right? So, functionally, it is, but I think socially, it's pretended to be um, because, like, you depend on each other. So, often, white people will ignore, like, the very real, like, racist things that Black people have to deal with because they think it's egalitarian you know they they think it's all equal because like we're getting paid the same we're treated the same but you know you see favoritism shown and everything and it's usually has something to do with race often um yeah um and it's okay for like if there's more than like two black people sitting together some white dude can totally come up and like if it's more than two of y'all it's a gang you know um like it's, it's a funny joke it could be a joke but like there's something very real behind that too that may not always be funny, you know, but so there's a liberty taking with racial things or as jokes because they think it's all equal. So yeah. And ignore it. Yeah. Some, somebody told me that too, about one of somebody I was in the military with, they heard me on the interview saying, talking about the racism, like I was in the military with you. You didn't experience racism. I was like, Okay, thank you for telling me that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for informing me about the contents of my own experience. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so I feel like it's worse in a sense because it's ignored and taken liberties with. And what about the political culture in the military? I think, again, like outside looking in, popular perception would be that the military uh, has a strong, like, right wing orientation. Um, was that your experience within it? Yes. Yeah. Strong right wing or like neutral. 
Um, so like liberal people kind of kept quiet, you know, like I, I definitely felt like I would have been liberal while I was in the military, but you know, I kept quiet. Um, like, yes, I'm for gay rights and other people like aren't, you know, or like I'm for immigrant rights, you know, like when I got in trouble about going to the immigrant march and then like people are openly like conservative there. So, and then more quietly liberal. So usually like the quiet people, you're like, okay. I kind of know what you are, maybe. You know, just <laughs> yeah. just like a, a look, a look in their eye. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, what about let, let, let's go back to books because you said you know you had this this sort of fallow period between the ages of twelve and twenty two or whatever, where you only read a book. Yeah, uh, but you were listening a lot to rap, which I think you know it sounds like uh, it's like a form of. Uh, interacting with poetry and thinking yeah. thinking deeply about it. I mean, that's the way I would sort of conceive of it from a literary perspective. But at some point, things must have shifted and you must have started reading uh, more deeply. Can you talk about when that happened and what kinds of books were really speaking to you? Yeah, I, um, what is it? So I started, um, I was reading Nikki Giovanni's love poems. <laughs> I think that was like, one of the first books that I read, like after that long period of not reading, was Nikki Giovanni's love poems, and I still have that book too. And I, uh, something from Harriet Tubman, I started reading that, and then um, Kurt Vonnegut too. So those were like the things when I started reading again. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, cool books. I remember liking books in my life, you know. And uh, but I still didn't think about writing. I didn't want to be a writer until like a few years later. Cause I was, um, I was a visual artist, so I was still painting and everything. And I had an art show, <clears throat> oh, sorry. I had an art show and my wife came to the opening. She was like, you ever realize how many words you have on your paintings? And I was like, ah, you know, that's, that's what it was, you know, like preparing for the art show, something didn't feel right. And I didn't realize like I was doing with words, what I felt like I couldn't do visually anymore. So, um, so yeah. And then at that moment I was like, all right, I should start writing. I think I was like, 26 when that happened so yeah so i started writing again <laughs> i mean so i started writing at 26 hmm. and reading more like i imagine you undertook like a, a more serious program of reading at that point yeah yeah well in listening too so i went back and started <laughs> listening to rap like closely like more closely like illmatic specifically because i wanted to write about west virginia and i remember feeling like i was in new york um, while listening to that album over the years repeatedly. So I went back. It was like, what is it about this thing that makes me feel like I'm here? Um, so I started applying a lot of that stuff to my writing, like to writing my book and everything. And um, more reading too, like kept reading Kurt Vonnegut, of course. Um, yeah, just finding like a whole bunch of different stuff to read. Yeah, it's nice. What was it about Vonnegut? I mean, I'm assuming what spoke to you about Vonnegut is what speaks to most people i mean it's the humor it's the um i don't know the deep like morality and kind of clear-sightedness that he has around issues of war and peace and social justice like that was it yeah i think so yeah and definitely like the humor and yeah and just like how weird it was too so it just made me think about a lot of different things um yeah, and I actually had a friend who was like, hey, have you read Kurt Vonnegut? I was like, no, I've never heard of him, you know? Uh, it was a friend in the military, too, yeah, a friend in the Navy who was, like, sort of like me in a way, you know, and um, he asked me had I read Vonnegut, and I never had. And 
I love hearing yeah. that. I love hearing that Vonnegut is circulating among uh, active soldiers or at least or recently active soldiers. Um, I was just like sort of extolling his virtues. And like one of the things that I think gets missed about him and about uh, any of the quote unquote anti-war novelists uh, in particular from the 20th century is like what a deep sense of patriotism he's operating from too. There's such a gr- yeah. there's such a grief in him. Uh, as a through line to all of his books, there's such a grief in him over uh, America and what has happened in American life in his lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I always thought about that too, but thought about like how it wasn't like, you know what I mean? Like I'm a young black dude in poverty, so that wasn't his. So I feel like the America he's grieving was never the America I was grieving. But I still liked, you know, I still liked his work, but I always recognized that, you know. Yeah, I mean, like different idea. I think like obviously coming at it from different vectors um, and life experiences. But wouldn't you say that like both of you are grieving an America that's fallen way short of its highest ideals? <laughs> yes, totally. Yeah, you're totally right about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think also too, like the plain language <laughs> for me, I don't want to say plain, you know, I don't, yeah, I'll say plain language, like seemingly like straightforward language with Vonnegut had and the playfulness and everything. So that's, yeah, and I loved it. So I just like started reading all of his books and it was pretty great. And I had to stop reading Vonnegut when I wrote, when I started writing Water and Power, because like, ah, if I don't, I would probably write another Vonnegut book. So I just stopped reading uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, you know. No, no, it's definitely your own. And um, I think knowing that you're a fan of Vonnegut, you know, I think I can like retroactively see um, more solidly the influence that he may have had. I think the integration of visuals, you know, and that sense of play and, um, you know, I'm thinking of Breakfast of Champions, I think is where he's illustrating and drawing assholes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yep. you know? uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. I reference him in the submarine story about the human zoo thing. Like I made sure to reference Vonnegut because like, it was a big source of my reading, you know? <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. No. And I think, you know, there's something about, I mean, his war experience was super horrific. I don't know. I mean, I guess if you read him, you probably know a bit about it, but yeah. Um, yeah, it was really bad. And I think maybe even for even for me, I want to say I read something recently that got into the details of what he actually went through or some of the most horrific things. And it exceeded what I already knew. And I knew that he had been, you know, in it. But uh, he was really wrecked by it his whole life. Yeah. Uh, I think it, you know, I don't think he ever fully got out from under it. I don't know if, I don't know if you could, but, uh, I guess like a, a question to ask is, do you feel that because of like, even if you didn't go into combat and you didn't really witness the kind of destruction that a soldier like Vonnegut may have, or like a frontline soldier in Iraq may have or whatever, um, because of just the inherent stakes, like when you're on a submarine, even if you're not, you know, in active combat, it's still dangerous. Um, yeah. The possibility always looms. And there's also a sense of for a person like you or Vonnegut or anybody who's thinking critically while they're in the midst of all this, there's always got to be this sense of confusion over duty and purpose 
and like, what the hell am I doing here? And is it right? Uh, like, you know, like all that kind of stuff. I think the question that I'm getting to is like, do you think, I guess it makes sense to approach a literature that in, involves the military with this kind of deconstructive collage multimedia playful um kind of approach like to 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 come at it on a straight line almost seems like it wouldn't work you almost have to come at it like this in order to make any kind of sense of it or at least that seems to be the reflex that like you and a writer like vonnegut and a writer like maybe joseph heller are working from yeah yes and it's, especially for me it's like i can be as critical as i want in the military but i'm still in it right so like i'm participating in this thing that i'm critical of which is i still struggle with that to this day you know it's like do i even have a right to be critical of this thing and the people in it when i'm also doing it um or also did it so yeah, i struggle with that a lot um, but yeah, but I wanted the book to reflect that struggle too. It's like the person narrating is, you know, like self-reflecting also about his participation in these things. So, and I don't know if the answer ever, you know, or if there even is an answer to that. So, well, you're such yeah. a young, you were such a young kid when you joined, like, like, mo- yeah. like almost everybody is who joins the military, you know? Yep. It's hard to, I think it's hard to, uh, you can't be too hard on yourself for decisions that you make when you're 18 years old. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially in advertising. <laughs> what about, um, any literature by, um, African American or, um, soldiers of color? Like, is there any like literary precedent that you were pulling from? I'm trying to think off the top of my head and, and sadly I can't think of anything uh, immediately, like a writer of color writing about their, um, about their military experience in a vein, you know, similar to, or of the same sort of general literary family as a writer like Vonnegut. Um, I can't, I can't think of the name right now, but I have a book called Bloods and it was by a black dude from uh, about Vietnam. You know what? Come to think of it, this might be this five bloods thing that Spike Lee just did. Yeah, I was just going to say. I was just going to say that's ringing a bell. Oh wow! I never. I had a book on my shelf and didn't even think that's what Spike Lee was doing. Wow, because I haven't seen Spike Lee's thing. But yeah, I have this book called Bloods, and that was good to look at. Like they talk about the racism. Um, nothing like too satirical that they've been doing or like deconstructing, but it was more about like the reality of their experience as black people. Um, so like formally, a lot of this stuff was similar, but but I can't think of a lot of other like um, military literature by black people. And as maybe I haven't done my research enough. Um, yeah, <clears throat> but for me, like what did it the most? That book, what influenced the book most for me was a uh, Walt uh, Waltz with Bashir. Have you seen that movie? No. Yeah, Walt. I can't. I'm from West Virginia, so my L's don't show up in the middle of my words often. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Waltz with Bashir to dance. Um, it's by Ari Folman. So it's about an Israeli when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982. Um, so he's going around like, what did we do there? You know, so he's asking all of his friends, what did we do? And I saw this movie when I was in the military. Like, uh, I think when I wanted to, 
when I knew that I was going to be writing, but I never thought how it would play in anything. But yeah, that movie right there, and like it's animated, but at the end it switches to this real footage, and it fucks me up every time I see it. Um, so like that thing, and so it's not necessarily like, I mean, is Israeli, <laughs> um, so not black, but someone like not white American, you know. So that was another precedent I had. Okay, so now I'm psychoanalyzing this a little bit, and you talked about how it fucks you up when it switches from animated to um, actual. And I'm wondering, like, if you thought about this and if I'm on the right track in thinking that maybe because of the nature of your role in the Navy, like you said, you were working in intelligence and were, you know, doing radar and you were on a submarine and you were sort of away from combat, but you were helping to facilitate it uh, in some way. Like, it, it strikes me that, like, work of that nature in a militaristic context has a certain abstraction to it. And that I could imagine, and I think, too, like, my cousin, I want to say, was doing drone, like, drone tracking, you know, like, tracking from a distance uh, targets for drones. And they might have even been firing them from the states. You know, these are all, these things are all computerized. And so you, it's kind of like a video game. Mm -hmm. And... I, you know, I could be messing up some of the details, but I think about the abstraction of that process, but the very real world, uh, hardcore consequences of the work and like how to bridge that divide. Uh, is, is that something that you have struggled with? Am I barking up the right tree? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. You are like in the top of the tree. Uh, you barked up there. You're at the top of the tree. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's, yes, all the time. And that's kind of like what the end of Water and Power is wrestling with, too, like the drone story in there, like closing that distance from like having these people, like these ghost-like people show up in this person's apartment and then switching to the real stories from um, victims themselves in the military. I mean, civilian victims of the military, switching to those stories and then to the list of like actual names at the end. So that was me like um, trying to mimic what Waltz, what Bashir, Waltz with Bashir was doing, like switching the footage, right? Animated to very real things, but also wrestling with that, that distance, you know, like we have this luxury of distance from what we do most of the time, but this is the reality of it. So yeah, you totally spot on with that. Okay. And you know, I'm curious also, like after going through all this and writing a book about it and obviously wrestling with these issues, uh, if you feel defined in your views of the use of military force, if they've changed maybe since you were in the military, um, you know, if we look to a guy like Vonnegut, he was obviously a pacifist and, um, you know, I don't know. It's like, it's, it always feels a little complicated to me because he gen generally advocated for pacifism and nonviolence, but he never talked about World War II as a war that should not have been fought. I think he called it a just war in the, you know, if I'm thinking, if I'm remembering his books correctly. So he, did. he obviously saw a necessity for combat in a certain context, at least. And I'm just curious, like where you fall on that after a decade in the Navy. Similar, um, like always a pacifist. <laughs> uh, but I like what you said earlier, like exactly what you said, like there could be a time when it's 
absolutely necessary and I wouldn't like I would not support it if I felt like that was absolutely necessary but that could also be wrong too right because a lot of people felt like the Iraq war was absolutely necessary so you know like what you said it's really complicated and just because I may maybe I may feel like something is just a just war one day it may never be just or yeah so I don't know it's tricky yeah. and I always question World War II like was it really just like people say that often like was it really a just war I'm not quite sure um I, it's one thing see there we go one thing I'm sure I'm like somebody should have fucked Germany up for real like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure about that one I'm not a pacifist on that one right so yeah that shit was just in that instance um the, the rest of that shit, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, like you talk about like uh, what happened in Japan and the you know Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think you can have a real yeah. debate. But Hitler, I feel pretty unequivocal about. Yeah. Um, I'll give a more modern example because it's also something that I just was having a conversation about with a friend. And um, she was like bagging on Obama, who I'm generally a fan of. But she was like, he, you know, he did so much drone warfare he bombed a preschool and like all this stuff and i'm just like first of all i don't i I don't know this story so i'm like googling like obama bombs preschool i'm like did he bomb a preschool you know and i i have a hard time believing that he is not a decent human being based on all that i know and have heard from him i know we're not supposed to give politicians too much of a benefit of the doubt uh you know inherently but like I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I have a lot of love for Barack Obama. And I guess like when I started to think more deeply about the issue of drone warfare from his perspective or from the perspective of any commander in chief, um, as you're sitting there, I think from the outside looking in, it would be like, yeah, don't don't drone bomb anybody. Don't do that shit. But then what if you're like the president and you're like the, the head of the CIA or um, – the national security agency comes to you and they're like, by the way, there's a camp in Afghanistan where they're training terrorists and they're going to blow some shit up and kill possibly thousands of civilians. Do you know what I'm saying? And so if you do nothing and you let this thing fester, then you might wind up having more blood on your hands than if you do something like I'm at least willing to entertain that idea as legitimate. Like, what are you supposed yeah. to do if the decision-making process or the decision-making authority is really yours? Like, that's not an easy calculation. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't want to have to make that decision. That's a horrible decision to have to make. But I can see how Obama could be rationally assessing it and could be like, well, this intelligence is pretty strong. Uh, you know, my, my guys are telling me that it's rock solid and like this is what it is. If I don't put an end to it, thousands of innocent people could die. And if I don't use a drone, then we've got to put soldiers on the ground and they could get killed. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, it becomes, my wife makes that exact same argument because I'm like, who who did you say you were talking to a friend of a friend of mine? She's like the, the, she's like to the left of Che Guevara. She's like the leftist person I've ever met in my life. (laughs) Oh man. So yeah, that's like, I'm usually like in line with your friend. I was like, oh, I'm gonna get on my goddamn nerves. He drove so much shit, like drone bombs. So and my wife is like, what you're saying. So like, I've been wrestling with that too. Um, too, like, man, I struggle with Obama. Like, yes, I'm sure he is a good guy. He just doesn't want to 
kill anybody on purpose, like any kids on purpose. But then I, there's the reality of what was done that I struggled with. So, yeah. And like being in during that time too is like, ah, ah you know? right. Yeah. I mean, you have a different yeah. perspective on it. And I should yeah. say too, like I, you know, I might be susceptible or probably am susceptible to looking at him through rose colored glasses, both because of who came before him and like the antipathy that I had for Bush and Cheney. And then also who came after him, you know, it's easy for, yeah. it's easy to deify Obama in present context. He sure looks good right about now. <laughs> you know? yeah, totally. yeah. 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 Like I, I struggle with him. And, uh, yeah. Even like I put it in the book too, you know, like the fictional part of like being at the ribbon care, uh, ribbon cutting ceremony, <laughs> you know, like I struggle with the fact that a black dude is now like the president and still fucking everything up overseas. You know, like I struggle with that fact, like, Oh my God. Like that is very true. And I'm not always fine with that, you know, like with that type of representation. Um, yeah, I think he didn't sign some order in Cambodia. So they don't like him in Cambodia uh, to like clean up the weapons or something. And like, he could have easily fixed it. And this doesn't seem like a, a moral quandary either, but then so like children are still like picking up these yellow beads and bombs and, getting messed up, you know, he could have cleaned it up. So I'm like, in Cambodia, they don't really fuck with Obama. <laughs> you know. So, but that's the thing, right? Like, that comes with this job, right? The job of president. So, yeah. It's weird. It is weird. It is weird. We have a... I think we have a pretty troubled last 100 years of uh, American leadership <laughs> in relation to the exercise of military power. Like we've been at war for the last, what, almost a hundred years. It's been 80 years. Yeah. 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 Never stops. Yep. Um, so what about getting to writing? Like you, is your first book potted meat? Is that it? It's potted meat in this. Yeah. yeah first book is potted meat. Yep. So, and I didn't realize that you were a visual artist. Did you have training in this or you just came out and started painting or family members and stuff like cousins would teach me how to draw and paint and um you know I took art classes in high school and stuff like that in um middle school so but no like really like great formal training so there's a lot of like learning from people and myself yeah and potted me does a lot about that too like a lot of painting and drawing and doing all of this stuff um yeah okay and then you started to get down to work on potted meat and what did that, uh, like, what did the uh, composition process look like? How long did it take you? It took me a few years. Um, and because I was coming out of painting too, I didn't realize that. But uh, at the time, well, like in the beginning of writing, I didn't, I was like writing a lot of three paragraph stories. <laughs> so like totally like composing stories like I would a painting, you know, like here's the background, here's the middle ground and foreground and so Potter Beat has a lot of three paragraph stories, which is interesting that I, I didn't realize I was doing, you know, consciously at first. But after I picked it up on, I was like, oh, this is what I'm doing. So, yeah, three years to write. And it's a lot of like short um, vignettes and stuff. And because I hadn't read a book, you know, or like hadn't read widely, one of my teachers when I was writing Potter Beat, she was like, oh, this reminds me of um, the house on Mango Street. And I was like, oh, cool, I'll read it, you know? <laughs> and I picked it up and read it, and I was like, shit, I need to quit writing my book because my book is like copying this book, you know, accidentally copying it. But I pushed through and wrote it. So it's very similar to, like, in structure and style to House on Mango Street. Hmm. But just like a happy accident. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I'm glad I read it though. Like it, it did shut me down for a while, but I'm glad I read it because it did like help me out and stuff eventually. So, so how does a how does a guy from West Virginia go from being in the Navy for a decade to being in Denver, Colorado? Oh, I was stationed out here. Yeah, you were. Yeah, there's a, yeah. there's a Navy base in Colorado. No, the um, the Air Force base, the uh, Buckley Air Force base. Oh, okay. Yeah, so because like you know satellites radar jobs and stuff I'm, i was on a lot of joint commands um so yeah buckley air force base has a lot of navy people there uh, intelligence wise so. uh got it okay is that down in colorado springs no it's in aurora yeah oh okay so you've been there ever yeah. since yeah well I, I was here from like 2004 to 2007 then i went back to hawaii and then I liked it out here so much that I, when I got out the Navy, I just moved back out here. Yeah, it's good living in Colorado. I like it there. It is, yeah. It's gotten hotter, though. I feel like it's been hot. My friends have said it this summer was like Phoenix. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's hotter here, yeah. All right. And I noticed the change around like 2010. Like like 2010, like it's been hotter out here. It's just really weird, yeah. Or t- 2011, somewhere around there, yeah. Well, it's only going to get worse. <laughs> I hate to break yeah. it to you. <laughs> yeah, like when I was out here from like 2004, it was like nice and cool. And, you know, yeah, like... yeah. Yeah, we're dealing, I mean, I live in Los Angeles. We're like just getting through the fires and I don't know, man. I Climate change. I, I know there's a lot of people worried about it, but I don't hear enough people talking about how worried they are about climate change. Like we should all be really fucking worried. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, it's good to talk with you, man. I really enjoyed this book. Um, and I feel like, I feel like it's for any, even if you're not in the military, maybe especially if you're not, it's a great book to read, to get a real sense of what it's like in contemporary times to be in, um, Mm. not just like in practice, but also, um, what the psychological and emotional, uh, landscape is like, you know, and there's a level of depth there. That's really, um, unique. There's some dark humor in it. I don't know. You do, you're doing a lot of different things well. And I suppose like the last couple of questions that I would pose to you is first of all, like what has been the response to the book by friends of yours or readers of yours who are in the military or who have served? Have you heard from these folks? Not much. Yeah. It's been a really quiet book. Um, a few people that I know, like in the military, read it. They was like, "Wow, like you, you did it." <laughs> you know, it was like you got all the boring stuff. You know, like it wasn't all heroic and action driven. So they felt like it was representative of a a lot of military life. Um, yeah, a few of them. So yeah, like good people that I know who read it were like, "Yeah, I feel you." You know, um, few military people who read it was like, "Oh man, you really got Japan down." You know, so they kind of skirted around the the bigger stuff that the book was dealing with. Uh, yeah, and I, I haven't heard from many, like, strangers in the military who's read the book. So, yeah, that's... And uh, one of my friends read it, and he was like, man, how did you get to work at the Taxidermy Museum? I didn't... I was like, that wasn't real, man. Like, you shouldn't know better. That wasn't... <laughs> you know, but, but, <laughs> But to him, he was like, he was like, I was wondering. He was like, I didn't, I didn't get to work there. I was like, yeah, because because it didn't exist, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so enough of the book was real enough to him that it was convincing, you know, to him that it was there. <laughs> so. 
So are you working on anything new? Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm um, I'm writing a book now about Nas albums. I mentioned that earlier. Um, yeah, and uh, Van Hunt. I don't know. Do you know Van Hunt? Um, no. He's a musician, like, uh, earlier. He was sort of in, like, the neo-soul camp. They put him in there. But he's been making albums. He lives in L.A., so I'm writing a book about him, his albums, too. So those are, like, my two big things right now books about music yeah <laughs> all right man well it's a pleasure to meet you congratulations on water and power uh best of luck on the nas book and uh with life in colorado thank you so much yeah and uh sorry about all the mishaps and stuff getting this thing together but i'm fine i'm glad we finally got to do it so. absolutely man absolutely best of luck to you all right have a good one thanks all right that is Stephen dunn his novel, again, is called Water and Power. It's available from Tarpaulin Sky. His other novel is called Potted Meat, also available from Tarpaulin Sky. Stephen can be found online at stephencdunn.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle at Twitter is scdunnjr, at scdunnjr. Stephen Dunn, Water and Power. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show, more than 670, is that what it is? Episodes? All of it is available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the program and you listen regularly and you get something from it, throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Of course, this assumes that you have a couple of bucks to spare. If you're not in a good situation financially, I totally get it. Don't sweat it. If you are and you can do it, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. You can send in a photo of where you listen, or you can DM the photo over at our Twitter feed at otherppl or on Instagram at otherppl.podcast. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. The app is free. Go get the app. It's a great way to listen. If you want to get some other people gear, t-shirt, sweatshirt, tank top. The t-shirts are really good, you guys. They're soft. I like them. They fit well. They're, they're good t-shirts. They're not scratchy. Do you know what I'm saying? You can get a t-shirt. Just go to otherppl.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar. Next week on the program, I have a Dean Kuntz as my guest the man has sold more than 500 million copies of his books <laughs> it's just like it's like hard to even like wrap your head around but Dean Kuntz will be my guest you know his name you've seen his books at the airport and whatnot. interesting conversation alright <laughs> <laughs>